forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessa Crispin. Public Intellectual is made possible by the support of its listeners like you, I say in my best PBS voice. Um, if you would like to become a supporter and keep Public Intellectual going, please go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual. You can get bonus episodes, exclusive writing, tote bag, the usual. Again, it's patreon.com slash publicintellectual. We are about a year and a half out from the 2020 election, and it looks like we have wasted most of the Trump administration, and uh, by we, I mean us on the left, making conspiracy theories about Russia. And while certainly conspiracies abound, it seems like some wasted time and energy when we could have been focusing on rebuilding our base. So I talk with Sarah Lazar and Jessica Stites, both with In These Times magazine, about what we do now that the big distraction of Russiagate is over, now that Mueller has not saved everyone, and now that we can no longer look to the FBI to regain a sense of dignity and a nostalgia that never actually existed. And just for clarity, the first interviewee that you will hear speaking is Jessica Stites. The Mueller report seems to have driven everybody insane in one extreme or the other. Um, so what is it about the Mueller report that does seem to have driven either everybody into conspiracy or into um, this uh, defense of Russia um, in the sort of Glenn Greenwald mode. Um, and is there a conversation to be had if we do somehow believe that Russia tampers with elections and that Trump will take advantage of any situation to gain more power and yet not think that the that the FBI is going to save all of us. Uh, where is the conversation there? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons that Russia Gate is really kind of seductive for liberals, and some of them I'm sympathetic to, and some of them I'm less sympathetic to. I mean, I on the sympathetic side, um, and uh, Sarah has mentioned this as well. I think. It, the election was really traumatizing for people. Um, they didn't see it coming, you know, at a moment when kind of we were gritting our teeth and seeing Hillary Clinton as kind of a, an outcome we would live with. Suddenly, sort of the worst possible outcome happened instead. Um, you know, when we were sort of saying, oh, God, well, maybe we can, you know, restore a welfare state and tackle climate change under a Clinton administration if we push really, really hard. Instead, we got somebody who just absolutely is going to, you know, totally got both of those things. Um, so it was, I think, scary and traumatizing. I think the xenophobia was really scary. People didn't know exactly how that would manifest. And, and Russiagate offered this um, hope that you could just kind of erase that, that you could just say this election was invalid. It should never have happened. Um, there was this outside force that made it happen. Um, 
And I think too, that, uh, kind of lets us look away from some of the more unsettling elements of why Trump was elected that um, are really sort of disturbing. And certainly his ability to whip up xenophobia and racism and sexism was part of that. Um, These trends that we thought were kind of like happily fading away over time as we became more progressive um, suddenly look like things that are kind of newly, um, (laughs) growing. And, uh, and then I think there are things that liberals and centrist Democrats really don't want to look at. Um, one of them is kind of the democratic party's inability to field a candidate who could speak really credibly to, um, people's, fears and frustrations around growing inequality um, and around the Democratic Party being um, kind of in bed with corporations uh, um, and in bed and, you know, it's militarism. I mean, all these things that um, have really caused a crisis of faith in both parties and caused, you know, almost a majority of Americans to not vote in any election. Um, You can Uh, and that arguably led to Trump's election, you can kind of sweep aside if you say, oh, no, no, this was just a fluke where where Russia came and kind of conspiratorially influenced our elections in a way that's unprecedented. Um, There was a New York Times piece kind of breaking all this down. They did a special insert, it was 12 pages, and they kept saying it was unprecedented. And I thought that was really funny because it's very precedented for Russia to try to interfere in our elections. And this isn't even the first time they've hacked campaigns. There was evidence they hacked uh, the Obama campaign. And I believe also the McCain, I'd have to check back, but Republican and Democratic campaigns have been hacked by Russians before. Um, you know, they've tried to use every kind of influence. I mean, certainly a greater there's a greater potential for cyber influence the more we kind of all are on Facebook and getting our news from Facebook. But, uh, you know, governments, including the U.S., have been using whatever medium exists from the news to like pamphleting, to you know, any sort of propagandistic means to mess with other countries' elections. I think uh, I looked at a study that the U.S. has interfered in more than 80 foreign elections since the CIA was founded in 1946. And that's just the ones we know about. Um, <laughs> whereas Russia was actually much fewer, you know, it was like 30 or something. So they're still doing it. But this is common practice for world superpowers. They, and um, so the idea that Trump was sort of uniquely propelled into power by the Russians, I think, is is a product of wanting the 2016 election to be this sort of outside beyond the pale fluke that we can sort of be rescued from. Um, And I worry that that um, kind of keeps us from looking at a number of ways that our our democracy is in a real crisis. Yeah, it seems like it's been yeah. very politically or emotionally um, convenient for people to believe that uh, otherwise Trump could never have been elected. Um, but Sarah, you wrote about how this fear of Russia that has been sort of whipped up is now being used by certain Democrats to sort of even even more um uh, increase the strength of our military. Uh, can you talk a bit about that piece? 
Yeah. So, you know, I just wanted to say that I don't think it's entirely fair when we're talking about um, liberal media outlets like MSNBC that are very influential with the Democratic Party. I don't think it's entirely fair to sort of characterize it as, um, you know, people's brains broke on both sides and both extremes were um, kind of kind of lost it. Um, I actually think that it skewed pretty far in the direction of um, stoking hysteria over Russiagate and Russian influence in a way that was really disproportionate. It doesn't mean that um, everyone raising questions or voicing skepticism um, got it totally right, but but I do think it skewed pretty far in one direction. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we should, the, the goal as a journalist and as a journalist on the left isn't to be um, the middle of the road or the center of two extremes, but rather to be critical and skeptical and adversarial and ask um, really big questions. Um, and I think that part of the reason why in liberal, liberal media we saw so much um, Russiagate hysteria and frenzy is that that aligns um, perfectly well with the sort of where the center of power is in the Democratic Party. Um, so, you know, that there are so many things that a, a big tent resistance effort could have been premised on. Um, it could have been premised on um, countering um, Trump's war on poor and working people. It could have been premised on countering the fact that Trump has um, done very dangerous things when it comes to climate change, including eroding the EPA and um, sort of filling the uh, regulate, regulatory agencies with even more people who are captured by industry or have direct ties to industry. So there are a lot of things that resistance strategy could have been based on. But it coalesced around Russia because um, the, cen the centers of democratic power um, are ultimately aligned with U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism and being able to say we're going to counter Trump by showing that we're tough on this historic geopolitical foe um, became a real rallying cry. Um, and it was a rallying cry that was very dangerous. I mean, these are people... Um, Chuck Schumer, uh, Dianne Feinstein, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who have been warning that Trump is unhinged and dangerous. Yet their solution is to say, um, "Prove that you're tough on, prove that you're tough on Russia." Um, and their solution was also to say, um, "Look, we need to prove that we're tough on Russia by passing a humongous $716 billion um, National Defense Authorization Act in 2019." that was premised on countering uh, Russia and China. And it included um, millions of dollars for um, new, quote, low yield nuclear weapons, which are, quote, flexible, which is just a euphemism for more usable. And that can only be viewed, at least in part, as a effort to hedge against Russia because the US and Russia own 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. Um, we also saw in the summer of 2017 um, sanctions against Russia being bundled with sanctions against North Korea and Iran. Um, and those sanctions, um, the, the proponents of those sanctions used the need to prove or trust on Russia 
um, as justification for pushing them through, even though they were very dangerous. I mean, sanctions are devastating to the poorest, most vulnerable, most exploited, most oppressed people in those societies. And also they threatened the Iran deal. Um, and even, and they ended up being backed by people who claimed that they supported the uh, nuclear deal with Iran, which was sort of one of Obama's cornerstones of his presidency. And, um, but in the atmosphere of sort of, you know, the resistance needs to be tough on Russia and prove that we're tough on Russia. Um, the, those bundled sanctions were supported by every single Democrat in the House. There wasn't any Democrat who opposed them, not even um, Representative Barbara Lee, who really distinguished herself as courageous in opposing U.S. wars in the aftermath of 9-11. And then the only person in the Senate who caucuses with the Democrats, Bernie Sanders, who's an independent, but caucuses with the Democrats, he was the only person who opposed the bundled sanctions, and he was really vilified. Um, and sort of described as a Russia lover. So, you know, I think um, we need to really dig beneath the rhetoric of resistance and standing up to Trump and ask um, what was happening on the ground. Um, And it's very measurable and very quantifiable, but not enough people have been asking that. It does seem like there was a conversation right after the election about um, you know, how somebody could lose the popular vote again and still become president, uh, how a, a campaign reform needs to happen um, with fundraising. But then all of these sorts of things kind of disappeared within the conversation about Russia. You you don't hear, I think Elizabeth Warren is the only uh, d- candidate on the left that I've heard so far mentioned the Electoral College in any of her speeches. Um, And uh, I think she and uh, only a couple others are talking about campaign finance reform. It still seems these fringe issues. But so if we know, and I think we do, what sort of allowed um, Trump within the system not, you know, not touching cultural issues like uh, white supremacy and so on yet. Um, You know, why has the focus moved so far away from these sort of structural, obvious problems um, that actually can be changed rather than just sort of chasing this phantom of Russia? Yeah, I mean, I really agree. I I'm hoping we can refocus on those things. I do think um, I've been sort of heartened to see this book getting a lot of attention um, by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablot called uh, How Democracies Die that really uh, points out the ways in which the U.S. democracy is in kind of dire straits. Um, And obviously, that's not only our voting system, that's also kind of the unprecedented access of corporations to government and the ways in which they shape uh, they and the wealthy sort of shape policy, but certainly plays out in our, our voting system itself. Um, and what I believe the book talks about is, um, you know, no longer are uh, democracies dying when there's kind of someone staging a coup and taking over or abusing their emergency powers. It's much more people, you know, quietly exploiting the legal ways to undermine democracy and then kind of strengthening the laws that 
um, undermine democracy. And, you know, we see that with Republican voter suppression right now, just hugely, um, and them kind of trying to double down on that in various states. Um, and I do think that battle around getting out the vote versus voter suppression is, is a huge one that we need to be paying attention to in 2020. Um, and I'm really kind of heartened in some ways that although Gillum and Stacey Abrams lost in Florida and Georgia, those races drew a lot of attention to the modes of voter suppression going on in those Republican uh, run states and how um, specifically racist they are. And I am really excited to see a lot of uh, liberal and left like money and energy going into trying to get out the vote in those states and do voter registration drives. So my my hope is there is some energy there. I just want to kind of stay focused <laughs> on that and, and stay aware that, you know, ultimately um, we can push for some reforms. I do believe in national popular vote. I think it'd be wonderful if the Democrats adopted ranked choice voting in the primary Um which, um, you know, gets around some of the kind of ridiculousness of a very entrenched two-party system where you end up kind of having to hold your nose a lot uh, <laughs> when, you, when you vote. Um, and then that could be a national model. So I think there's a lot of reforms we should push for. I think there's going to be a lot of just on the ground, let's get people registered and get people out because you have to kind of have that force and be exercising the vote in order to then push forward the reforms we need. Um, yeah, you know, I think when we talk about the problems with U.S. democracy, there's a whole lot we should be talking about. So, of course, um, there's voter suppression. There's the Electoral College. I mean, it always boggles my mind that Democrats don't make voter suppression more of an issue, yet they never really center that or prioritize that. But also, um, if we want to talk about the problem with U.S. democracy, we have to really look internationally and not just sort of, you know, only hold the interests of people, you know, we sort of we have to look both within and beyond U.S. borders. So the U.S. has um, five colonies that can't vote in presidential elections, even though Guam per capita has the highest levels of military recruitment um, out of the U.S. and all of its colonies. So um, they can uh, go fight and die in U.S. wars, but not vote on the president who's going to be playing a big role in those wars. Um, we also have to look at um, U.S. wars and occupations around the world, just looking at Afghanistan. Um, the U.S. has been at at war and occupying Afghanistan since 2001. Um, that means the U.S. has tremendous control over Afghan society um, in the day-to-day, -day. Um, but people in Afghanistan don't get to vote in U.S. elections. Um, I'm not suggesting that's the solution. I think the solution is ending the occupation. But if we want to talk about U.S. democracy, um, we really have to look internationally, you know, you know, leftists, I, I believe that leftists should embrace the principle that um, people everywhere are equal. It doesn't matter where you're from. Um, and the, if the U.S. is undermining self-determination um, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in the Philippines, um, in Somalia, where the U.S. has a covert drone war, in the 
um, 800 bases and military installations around the world. If the U.S. is undermining self-determination, then that also is a strike against democracy. Um, so if we really want to talk about the problems of U.S. democracy, we have to look at that big picture. And also the way that the Democrats have refused to or, you know, I, I can never I can never seem to find the anti-war wing of, of the left anymore. But um, the sort of building up the um, the military resources of Central Europe and Eastern Europe and the Baltic states with the sort of European deterrence initiative and how the. Democrats were super okay with that, like this sort of soft empire that America keeps building. Um, and of course, the continuing of the conflicts that Obama escalated. Um, it all just seems like uh, this sort of weird Cold War nostalgia where we just really liked having a villain so that we... Um, can just sort of justify a lot of bad behavior with, well, you know, we, we have to do whatever it takes. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the Obama administration, I mean, the Obama administration in 2016 used the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, which has been referred to as sort of a war slash fund, um, to contribute to um, the biggest NATO military buildup near the Russian border since the end of the Cold War. Um, so even before this latest sort of Russiagate hysteria, there was already a push um, within the Democratic Party to build a more confrontational stance um, and get on more confrontational footing. Um, and unfortunately, um, the center of gravity in both the Democratic and Republican parties is very much aligned with U.S. wars of aggression, with U.S. empire. Um, many of the same Democrats who are um, rallying behind the banner of resistance and proving we're tough on Russia are the same people who bought us the war in Afghanistan, um, who brought us the horrific U.S. intervention into Libya, which has gotten very little attention. Um, but has, you know, led to horrific conditions, you know, open air slave markets. Um, many of these people are the same people who brought us, um, you know, who stood by silently while the Obama administration backed the war on Yemen, which has pushed the country to the brink of famine and um, created what the UN calls the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Um, so, you know, I think um, when we ask what went wrong, with the Russiagate coverage, we really have to ask the question of what went wrong with our political system and can't just look at Russia in isolation, but have to ask a lot of questions about sort of where the political center of both the Democratic and Republican parties lies. I feel like the rhetoric around, um, you know, Trump's main priority being to undo everything that Obama accomplished is uh, weird and wrongheaded because there is a sort of continuation of a lot of um, what Obama was doing. I think, you know, things like healthcare and, and tax reform are sort of big, obvious things that we can point to as saying, like, look, Trump has a problem with Obama. But for the most part, like, um, these things are not the, the policies that and the practices that a lot of people 
are freaking out about now did start under Obama. Um, they were just sort of escalated uh, and with Trump and made more obvious. Um, but it does seem like there's this preference for us just not to know about it. I w- was having a conversation with my friend. It was very frustrating because, you know, I was pointing out that a lot of the sort of mass deportations and uh, the drone warfare program and the EPA um, being sort of defanged started under the Obama administration. And and her argument was maybe it was just better when we didn't know about it, (laughs) that civility um, mattered more than, uh, than actual practice. So like, how do we, how do we think about this when we're talking about, um, uh, covering these issues and understanding where they originated? Yeah. I mean, I think there has been an irony experienced on the left that you're sort of yelling and screaming about things happening under Obama, like the, you know, the massive increase in deportations and immigrant rights groups called him the deporter in chief. And, and there was this, uh, you know, liberals really didn't want to hear it. It was really hard to break through on these issues or the drone war or, um, you know, we ran several big investigations about what was going on at the EPA and how um, incredibly influential like chemical companies were in actually, you know, doing the research that the EPA would then rely on to regulate (laughs) chemicals. Um, And all of this, it was really hard to gain traction. And then, you know, there is this sort of Trump comes into office and suddenly people have a villain around Im- immigration that they that liberals feel much more comfortable with, and so they are become angry about um, deportations, and that's great. I- I'm glad that we're finally, you know, we have a really. Um, I'm really happy with some of the way the democratic rhetoric has moved around immigration and how they talk about it as a humanitarian crisis, but I, the worry is that that's sort of thin um, and that. Um, when the you know let's hope Trump is out of pa- voted out and a Democrat takes power, and then um, if all that the Democrats were doing was sort of posturing around resistance, that they'll slide right back into the rhetoric they had pre-Trump around immigration, which was you know let's secure our borders and um, you know it's really I mean even Democrats said stuff about sort of. <laughs> immigrants being dangerous and bad for workers like that was that was cross-partisan rhetoric um so you know i think um we can't indulge too much in obama nostalgia we need to point out you know i think the narrative of 2020 is things have been wrong for a really long time and they were accelerated under trump and we need to find uh a democratic presidential candidate who can win, who um, can really reverse where we're going on a number of things and kind of leapfrog us in the right direction because things have been going so poorly for so long. Um, and I think the the narrative that will prevent that is the sort of like Trump's the problem. We just have to get Trump out at all costs and it kind of it doesn't matter Um you know, what we have to compromise to do that. Uh, and, and I do see, I do see Russiagate as a part of that mentality, um, as this sort of 
a little bit kind of short-sighted, um, let's get Trump out, even if it means kind of putting all of our faith in the FBI and kind of doing other things that normally we, as as the left, would question. Yeah, you know, I think that that um, the resistance strategy of Russiagate has really been premised on reinforcing and looking to the most punitive, violent institutions in our society um, to save us. And those institutions are, you know, the U.S. military, arguably the greatest purveyor of harm in the world. Not arguably. It (laughs) It is. (laughs) And um, the FBI and law enforcement and prosecutors. Um, And these are institutions that were upheld by Obama and have been upheld by Democrats and Republican administrations. I mean, you know, one of the things that Obama really did is uh, expand presidential powers to make war. So he very loosely interpreted the 2001 authorization for use of military force, um, which was used to justify the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, to justify um, military interventions around the world. Um, Barbara Lee's office once estimated um, that that AUMF in 2001 was used to justify interventions in 17 different countries. Um, That number is probably higher now. Um, But we're talking um, drone wars, um, uh, bombings, um, proxy interventions. Um, and when you expand presidential war-making powers, you're not only directly perpetrating harm, you're also handing those greater powers over to Trump, um, who is now at the helm of the biggest military empire in the world and has more war-making powers due to Obama. Um, I also think, you know, one of the big stains of the Obama administration was in 2014 in response to the crisis of mass displacement from Central America. Um, A lot of that displacement, by the way, fueled by U.S. trade policies and um, interventions into Central American countries. In response to mass displacement, Obama um, initiated um, large-scale family detention, um, which meant incarcerating um, children with their mothers or with their parents. Um, and, um, those facilities continue to this day. Um, they're really horrific. They've seen hunger strikes There, there were reports under Obama from mothers incarcerated with their children saying that their children were deeply traumatized, that they were suicidal, that they were having very dark thoughts, that it's a horrible place to, um, hold a child. Um, you know, the Obama administration tried to call them facilities, but those on the inside say, no, these are prisons. These are prisons where children shouldn't be forced to live. Um, And, you know, of course, Trump's policies of family detention and separation were definitely an escalation. I don't want to make the argument that what Obama did is on the same level as what Trump did, because it was an escalation. But this is what happens when you hand these precedents over to someone like Trump who has far right politics, who will turn on a dime, um, who um, is accountable to a terrifying base that's comprised of white supremacists, um, right wing neocons, 
And, um, that, you know, uh, if, if there had been more opposition to what Obama was doing, um, we'd be in a different spot. Um, you know, it, it's always bad having a Trump presidency, but it's especially bad when there, there, there's no real political force that's willing to oppose the system um, that enables his cruelty. And gosh, everyone was just losing their minds over Russiagate to such an extent that, you know, the Democratic Party was and is in no position to um, be a meaningful force questioning war and a more confrontational stance. I mean, Russiagate was even used to you know, in the press to sort of impact um, war making and conflict that um, that are far beyond the scope of just Russia. Like, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow had segments, you know, when when Trump um, didn't act to undermine the peace talks between South and North Korea, Rachel Maddow had a segment where she accused him of being a Putin lover. Um, there, there are decades long efforts to end the Korean War, um, which has been devastating. Um, the U.S. is a party to that war and left and progressive social movements are demanding that it come to an end. Um, the position of the left should be pushing for um, de-escalation, um, not, not saying Trump is so unhinged and violent. Let's, let's give him a bigger arsenal. Let's give him a, a more confrontational footing. I mean, that's just reckless and dangerous. And then talking about 2020, I just, um, I'm really concerned about the fact that uh, war, U.S. war um, and occupation abroad isn't um, sort of more central to the conversation. We really need to be talking about that. And I worry that one thing the Russiagate hysteria has done is uh, make that even more taboo than it was before to discuss on large platforms. And it also seems like the engagement with, with Russiagate um, was so surface level in the sense of like, oh, if we just have some sort of something actionable, uh, then we can impeach or I don't even, I don't even know what the plan would have been at that point. Um, as, as if like the as if the Trump base wasn't still going to exist, as if like it would erase everything, right? Uh, if we just had like some actionable um, way to uh, impeach him in in a sort of obvious way, then everything goes away. Whereas the conversation immediately turned away from anything um, that would create a situation to not have uh, somebody exactly like Trump, a demagogue, um, in, in the future. So um, it just seems like it's been such a massive distraction from anything that matters. And also the issues of, of Trump and what he's doing, it just seems like such a surface level engagement of just like, if we just don't, if we just get rid of this particular guy, somehow everything goes back to, to normal as if there was there was normal for I don't know ever <laughs> as, if as if normal was a great place yeah I think there's sort of a conservative impulse there uh, to to sort of want to think that our societal institutions were fine and we can just go back to the way they were and I do think. Um, 
one of those institutions is the media. So it's sort of interesting um, that the media has been really the one kind of blowing up the story of Russiagate. Um, when I think the media itself was possibly in a position to do some some soul searching after the 2016 election, you know. Um, there's a real argument that the media handed Trump the election by giving him so much unearned uh, free media time. He got, I think, $1.9 billion worth um, of free coverage, which I just absolutely dwarfed what anyone else was getting. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's because a uh, media that wants ratings is set up to cover whatever is the most sensational. And so you get a candidate who's willing to be very sensational um, it sort of fits nicely with whipping up a white nationalist base because you can say these, um, you know, not very coded racial th- racist things and they'll get airtime and, um, you know, help him with his base and give him all this all this media attention. Um, so, you know, you've got the media just completely uh, succumbing to that and succumbing to sort of having a celebrity candidate um which is, I think, something we've all kind of seen coming and joked about and feared, including in all the jokes uh, across pop culture that Donald Trump might be president someday. Um, you know, it's clear that the media is susceptible to um, kind of elevating celebrity candidates who are not necessarily qualified or who are actively dangerous. And yet... Um, after that, uh, the media just kind of turned around and invested in Russiagate. Um, and I think maybe there was some psychology there where they wanted to kind of, I don't know, atone for their <laughs> their role in the Trump presidency by um, sort of being the kind of white knight part of the, you know, the white knight that went and un- unseated him. Um, but the way in which they did so just completely kind of re- recapitulated the same kind of impulses during the campaign in that um, Russiagate coverage has not been direct investigative journalism by media outlets. Um, They're not out getting sort of uh, scoops on what the campaign was doing or, um, you know, what Russia was doing. I mean, it's, it's in no way analogous to Watergate, despite the title, which was, you know, investigative journalism that then led to an investigation. This has really been um, just kind of meta coverage of an investigation. Um, I think when 538 looked at the coverage and, you know, found that MSNBC was covering Russia Gate almost every day, um, they said it was all meta investigative coverage. It was all Trump said this about the investigation, or here's a crumb that Mueller let drop that we're going to sort of hypothesize about. Um, so it was this same impulse to cover kind of like, what's sensational and Trump as a personality rather than doing, you know, what I would say is kind of real deeper journalism. Um, and I'm not saying that that real deeper journalism would only need to be trying to find out what's going on with Russia gate. I mean, I think, um, what we're, what we're seeing is a lack of looking at kind of actual policy and how actual policy affects actual people. Um, So, you know, I think looking um, at the 2016 presidential race in terms of the policies that candidates were advocating and how they would affect people would have been fabulous. Um, And I 
I'm really hoping that given that Russiagate looks like it's going to have been a bit of an embarrassment for the media, that they will take that to do, um, to kind of just be a little more sober about how they approach coverage going into 2020. That's certainly our mandate. And in these times, I mean, we never really fell prey to covering Trump as a personality or to covering Russiagate as kind of like a, you know, uh, dramatic spy story. But um, what we really want to do is look at just what are these candidates' policies and how will they affect everyday people? And what are the things they're not talking about that we need to push them to talk about, like their foreign policy? Um, and that's that's our goal going in. So I'm, I'm just hoping that the larger media <laughs> takes some of those same approaches. I was just going to say, um, I think ratings had something to do with um, failures, both in the coverage of the 2016 election and in Russiagate, but I don't think that they fully explained what happened. Um, I think we also have to take a big look at sort of the political and ideological positions of uh, those leaders who run um, major media outlets. Um, Sometimes I worry a little bit about like, relying too much on like the quest for ratings to explain why some things get more coverage versus others, because I think that there are some examples we can look at that show us how that actually doesn't hold up and the media can make something a story if it wants to. Mm. For for example, like, like Yemen has been covered horribly by the press generally up until very recently um, with most media outlets just sort of not covering the mass killing and starvation that the U.S. has been a part of. And a lot of people have speculated, like, well, that gets bad rating. Um, People don't want to read about that. Um, But the press can certainly make, um, you know, uh, parallel or somewhat similar stories, um, big media events if it wants to, you know, just look at how the U.S. covered, um, is covering Venezuela right now, for example. Um, and, and look at the gap between how, um, um, sort of poverty and economic difficulties in Venezuela get covered versus, um, numerous other Latin American states that the U.S. um, is allied with. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's, we, we have to really ask questions about what are the politics driving these outlets, um, in addition to, you know, encouraging journalists and colleagues not to just go chasing ratings but but I think both are really important and I feel that there hasn't been enough interrogation of the like political outlooks and you know in these times I think um like so you know as Jessica said one thing we've tried to do is just sort of make sure we're covering um vital important issues um that really got eclipsed by the Russiagate coverage um from sort of the outcome of the Janus ruling to um, the war on Yemen. Um, But another thing we've tried to do, so our position or my position this whole time has really been, um, you know, regardless of um, what comes of the Mueller report, regardless of the extent to which um, uh, the Trump administration did or did not collude 
uh, with Russia, we should be very, very concerned about how Russiagate is being used. Um, that's quantifiable and measurable. It was used to um, build up the military budget. It was used to justify more confrontational footing, and it was used to really attack the left. Um, so um, we actually, one of our journalists, um, Julianne Stetton, wrote a piece um, uh, back in October 2017, sort of looking at how the fake news scare is marginalizing the left and how the sort of Russiagate um, uh, in response to Russiagate, um, Facebook sort of took it upon itself to define who is and is not legitimate journalism. Um, and it, it, you know, Facebook is the most powerful media organization that has ever existed in all of human history. And they are private and they're very unaccountable and they contract with, um, with the U S government in all sorts of ways. And, um, the idea that we would give them more power to say who is and is not out of bounds journalistically and that that would somehow be construed as a resistance strategy um, was totally ridiculous. So we tried to sort of keep our eyes on not not the inflammatory rhetoric, but on the material concrete outcomes of the Russiagate coverage that were happening before our eyes, but not getting covered enough. And there was such a, you know, again, like this sort of nostalgia um, uh, with Russiagate uh, going, hearkening back to sort of Watergate of this idea of the scrappy journalist, you know, taking down a president, everybody sort of imagining themselves as Bob Woodward because he's, you know, the more handsome of the two. Um, but then, uh, you know, and then the Washington Post putting up that motto of democracy dies in darkness, but, you know, also uninsured Amazon factory workers die in darkness. I don't know. Like there was just something very self-serving about the whole Russiagate pursuit uh, within the media to not be held accountable for the ways that they contributed to uh, Trump winning the election and then to just sort of posit themselves as the the saviors of the situation um, and also speaking of savior, saviors, like part of the the thing that is, freaks me out about this conversation is how much the left loves saviors. There was a photo of a beta, beta rally of a guy holding up, you know, um, a poster saying Beto is our Christ. Um, people have been trying to turn you know, Mueller into daddy and, uh, you know, the sort of Comey worship um, and yeah, I just don't know if we're a very sophisticated voting block uh, like we like to uh, pretend that we are. Yeah, I mean, I think that oh, you're really seeing the Obama nostalgia there, and it's really worrisome in that I, I mean, I and I'm, I'm, I succumb to it too. I found myself on a weird rabbit hole of Obama videos the other day, and I was like, he's so charismatic, and you know, it, it's true. We love a charismatic, halogenic eloquent person but um also i think we have to really worry about people who want to be president for president's sake who you know i think better we're seeing this in the sort of mayor pete or people who um they both say things like well i i don't need to have a policy platform that's detailed right now because you know um, it's more important to inspire people and i don't need everything worked out before day one and it's like no actually yes you do like we need to know what we're voting for um and i do appreciate um 
you know, certainly Elizabeth Warren just pounding out policy proposal after policy proposal. So we know exactly what we'd be doing. Um, and I think Bernie Sanders has been very consistent on what he wants for a very long time. Like there are no surprises <laughs> in a presidency. So I do think um, the public needs to be taking that seriously. And, and uh, even Obama, I mean, there were things he promised that he just didn't do. And I think that was because he didn't have a huge policy record and he was kind of swaying with the wind a little bit with the, I mean, he didn't, you know, I mean, Guantanamo is an example of something that was like a, a key platform and that he, you know, he didn't realize, um, and ending the war in Afghanistan is another one. Um, but there's just so many things like that. Um, so, it, you know, there's that. I also, um, I also just worry in general about putting too much on the presidency. Like, obviously, who's president is important. But to me, um, what's important as a president is in a president is somebody who's not going to stand in the way of social movements who will and and a Congress that will sort of enact the will of social movements. I think that with something like climate change, that isn't going to come from the top. Like a president just doesn't have the capital to make an entire country change that dramatically without a bottom-up movement that's asking for that and pushing for that um, because it's just so radical. The like, ways we're going to have to transform ourselves to deal with climate change in a, in a timely manner. So, you know, I think what we want is a president who's um, pressurable by and accountable to social movements. And then we need to build those movements um, to make things, things happen. So another just concern I have is let's people kind of putting everything on pause and putting all of their hope in a president in the president and the presidential race that's starting like two years out when a lot of what we need to be doing is building power to either push who's ever in office or support who's ever in office to do the things we need them to do. Yeah. And I, you know, just a note about like Comey and during in that period where he was really being held up as a hero and a savior, um, that was just totally outrageous. I was like losing my mind when that was happening. Um, Comey was totally awful. He, um, you know, he carried over warrantless um, spying from the Bush administration. He spied on Black Lives Matter activists and. Um, uh, sent agents from the Joint Terrorism Task Force um, to investigate Standing Rock um, water protectors. Um, he spied on left-wing activists at the Republican National Convention. I mean, this is someone who um, is not a hero of the left at all and who the left should not be investing any hope in as the guy who will come save us from the systemic failures in the U.S. political system, including Trumpism. So we're, we're still like a year and a half until the election. And now that the sort of Russiagate big distraction is hopefully over, um, do you see sort of hope in sort of tackling some of these issues that allowed for the election of Donald Trump before we get to 2020? Or do you think that we are doomed? <laughs> 
Um, I think it's a good moment to push the Democrats left. Um, I enjoy this class of young uh, congresswomen, you know, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, who are uh, Ilhan Omar, who are coming out and saying things that are um, sort of anathema to the Democratic Party orthodoxy, but very much need to be said. Um, And I think um, under a Trump administration is a good Um, when the Democrats sort of believe that they need to court the left is a good time to force them um, toward more and more kind of left positions that they're on record (laughs) taking and even like putting bills out that maybe protest bills now, but, you know, will be out there and as, as model legislation that can be introduced again. Um, So I think pushing energy there, um, I think the presidential stage is an amazing place to have public conversations about big issues. And if we can get out a little away, a little from like debating the relative, like, you know, boyish smiles of like Beto and whoever and um, use it as a place to like really talk about foreign policy or really talk about the Green New Deal. you know, that could be very positive. Um, Yeah, you know, I think um, in some ways it's an exciting time right now. Um, You know, left movements are um, rising. Uh, Socialism is no longer a dirty word for a lot of people. It's a really exciting word. Um, And I think that the left is in a position right now where, um, you know, as the 2020 president's court the left, um, we can demand big things, right? So not just take what's being offered, but say, um, okay, well, you need a really solid um, anti-imperialist strategy. Um, You need to support a version of the Green New Deal that shuts down the fossil fuel industry and creates a robust, um, just transition, jobs guarantee, universal basic income, you know, something that... uh, leaves no worker high and dry and protects union rights. Um, So we can be making very big, bold demands. I think now is an exciting time to do that. Um, I think the um, candidacy of Bernie Sanders is exciting. I also think um, to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Warren's candidacy has some potential, but I think everyone um, can be uh, forced to move further to the left than they are. And that one way to do that is to um, put forward um, solid, um, really well-researched demands um, that do not fall into the really troubling framing of the Russiagate narrative. So, you know, solutions that aren't premised on, um, you know, whoever is going to be in the White House in 2020 showing they're tough on Russia and tough on all of Russia's allies and they're going to build the military and um, impose more sanctions and take the U.S. to the brink of a really horrible, um, you know, global war. That's absolutely not what any left or progressive or even, you know, anyone claiming to oppose Trumpism should be demanding. Instead, we should be really imagining um, the best, boldest uh, paths forward. Um, and I don't think hopelessness is a good 
that happen. And one thing I think I'm seeing on the left that's exciting is a little bit more internationalism that's sort of reviving or at least conversations about internationalism. And I do think um, climate change is a really interesting moment because it does have to be an international effort to say like, can we completely reimagine what the role of the U.S. is globally and what does it look like for a president to kind of abandon our role as like the world's policemen or, you know, these horrible metaphors that are effectively just, um, in, you know, a U.S. empire and, and ask them to imagine the U.S. as like a constructive global player that uh, genuinely acknowledges the harm it's done in so many ways and how it can repair that harm. Um, you know, these are, these are, I, I mean, climate change is just a really nice entree into that conversation. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.